we can look in verse 1 and 2 how he shows expressions of despair. We can look at verse 3 and 4 and see how David um, writes forth um, expressions of desire. And in verse 5 and 6, we can see how David will grow into expressions of delight. One of the things that that I've kind of noticed and looked at as we're introduced to the three main characters of this psalm, and it seems to be the three main characters of, of a lot of these psalms. And it was the same thing as with Psalm 12 last week, last Wednesday, in that we're dealing with David. We're dealing with David's God, right? Our God. And we're dealing with David's enemies. And for some reason in these, this um, triangle of characters in this psalm, it seems to, to bring David to places of perplexity and maybe even pain. He struggles with how to deal with this. He finds himself um, trying to deal with his enemies in this perceived absence of God in the beginning. And we'll read this through and go through it, but just to set the stage. In this perceived absence of God, he tries to deal with the with the pain that's going on that he feels that, are, that is coming from his enemies in, with and by his own resources. And he starts understanding as we, as we begin this psalm that, that he does not have the ability to handle life situations. Okay? So let's take a look and let's just, let me just read through this and then we'll back up. Six short verses in Psalm 13 reads like this. It says, How long, O Lord... How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So maybe you can kind of get a a sense and maybe a feel as to the, the traveling psychologically that David um, goes through here from the very beginning of this psalm, from him sitting down and starting to write this psalm, his level of despair that he seems to be in start off with four questions of how long. He writes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? How long... Shall I continue to have sorrow in my heart? And how long will my enemy be exalted over me? You know, in this place that David seems to perceive himself to be, like we began kind of at the beginning, he seems to perceive that in the, the depth of this place where, where emotionally he's at, God seems to be gone. No matter how hard he stretches out in his own mind, in his perceived reality, he feels like he's left alone. 
And let me ask this. In, in David's life here, and in what David's expressing in, this, in, in this, this attitude of despair in the first two verses, do you believe it's, it's a real place of reality that he's at? Or is this just David's perception of where he's at? And we can read through the other six verses, and I can answer that and maybe make it a little easy, easier. Um, David is in a, a place that he feels he's alone. David knows who God is. David understands who God is. But sometimes in the places that we get stuck in our life, it seems like between a, a, a rock and a hard spot, sometimes our cries we feel don't get heard. Even though God's promises, Christ's promises, is I won't leave you as orphans. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Wherever you are, I am there with you. Sometimes in the places of life where we tend to find ourselves, we allow the world and we allow the enemies dictating of how we see the world to shift from a trust in who God really is to a perceived place of I've got to do it myself. And in where, I, where we've got to resort to our flesh and where we've got to try to do it ourselves, there's always despair. We're never strong enough to take on everything that, that the enemy's world can throw at us. Without Christ, we don't have the strength to put up with that. And sometimes when we forget and we walk away from the truth of God's word, or slowly we, um, we find ourselves sliding, slowly, just increment at a time, back away from a place where we've got intimacy and communion with God. Christ living in us, the hope of glory. And we start allowing life circumstances um, to dictate whether or not we have time to spend in the word, worshiping God in his word and allowing his word to, to fill us and enrich us. You know, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, he wrote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. But the world's ways and sometimes the... Um, uh, the busyness of our schedules and the demands that get placed upon us, we tend to think, take precedent over that time in the presence of God. And in that, as we take little slow step at a time into the world, and the world has its, its pull, its gravitational force that pulls us away from that place of being set apart to Christ. And we all know what that feels like. Those of us that have been walking with Christ for a while, we know what it feels like to just be held in his righteous right hand, right? Sometimes it interferes in our, in our time of prayer, our time of just setting aside and communication with God. Sometimes we get busy or we get tired. And, and a lot of times I find myself at the end of the day when I want to pray and it's getting late and I'm tired and I say, well, I'll pray as I'm getting into bed. And I go to bed and I'm out, done, another day over. And I'm not saying it as a legalistic thing, you guys. 
um, as something we need to check off our list and we need to do this or that or that kind of thing. I'm talking relationally as to how we stand, you know, in, um, in tune, in worship, proper place of worship in our life before the cross of Christ. You know, how often do we let some of our, our responsibilities as, you know, in our busy family lives as, as husbands and fathers and mothers, um, as teachers, as students, as business people, whatever, interfere with our times of gathering here with our family, with our faith family, and being able to just be truthful with those others that are following Christ and going through the same thing to hold each other up and encourage each other and allow each other to, to speak into our lives with exhortation. It, it happens subtly and it happens slowly. And I think David's outlook in just verse 1 and 2 kind of shows us what can happen and where we can end up and where we can be. We can, bend, we can end up being in despair. But the thing about it is, it's not, it's, not, it's not a truthful place of despair. It's a perceived, irrational place of despair. So let's take a look and see what the next step David grows into. Okay, If we look at verse 3 and 4. In 3 and 4, he, he at least doesn't do... What, what some of us would get caught doing every once in a while in, in, in just walking away, you know, and, and maybe taking that irrational step that the enemy wants us to do where, hey, God isn't hearing my prayers. You know, I, I'm walking away. I'm giving up on this. Um, you know, for some reason I perceive where I'm at that God isn't listening. David steps in closer. At least in verses 3 and 4, what David does is start to petition God. He starts saying, it's still in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place of reverence, and even in verse 1, it's a place of reverence, right? He says, how long, O Lord? He's still speaking to his Lord. He's still speaking to um, his, his master, one whom he trusts in even though he's sliding, even though he's in a place of, of desperation. In verse 3, he starts, he starts petitioning. He starts saying, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Consider me. Hear me. I pray, Lord. I pray, Lord, would you hear? Would you listen? Would you consider? And he bows himself in a place of worship as he says, O Lord my God. And he says, enlighten my eyes. Enlighten my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. And in that description, you know, enlighten my eyes, what he's praying for is he's like, Lord, look, revive me. Revitalize me. Encourage me. Refresh me. Open my eyes to grant me the vision of you and the understanding of you that I had before I got into this mess. I need you. And you can see the need as, is, as we look at the words in here. You can see the need that, that, um, that he's voicing. <clears throat> you know, that term, enlighten my eyes, is I had a chance to kind of take a look at that and see what he was, what David's really talking about. 
back in Ezra. <clears throat> Let's see if I can find it. Back in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra says something real similar as he's, as he's talking to the nation of Israel. And he's talking to the leaders. And he's speaking to God. He's saying, um, verse 7, and then I'll go to verse 8. It says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. David saying, enlighten my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. David's at a point where he is, he's at a breaking point as he's speaking of, you know, enlighten my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. I think sometimes we've all got to be brought to that point where all the efforts and all the abilities that we have within ourselves are exhausted. In order to really, really place the entirety of our trust, the entirety of our lives, of everything we are laid at the foot of the cross in trust to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be emptied of every little bit of pride, of self-sufficiency, of self-righteousness that we've got. Sometimes in order for us to be broken to that point, I guess what I'm saying is we have to be exhausted of, our, our, of all of our own abilities to get us, get us out of the mess we're in. And I think he perceives himself to be at that point. He says in verse 4, as he, as he talks about you know, his enemies again, he says, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. His enemies are what's giving him the issue. And his enemies aren't necessarily hurting him physically at this point. But he seems unable to overcome their pursuit of him. As you read through David's story, he seemed to be unable to be able to hide in the right spot or... or um, outrun them with speed of his own strength. He had to be strengthened by, by God's mercy. He had to be brought, brought to prayer for God to intercede. But his enemies and the words of the enemy and the pursuit of the enemy in perseverance is bugging him. Right? It's like we've got those things sometimes, you know, in our life that we just want over. We just want behind us. And I think in all those things, God teaches us. He tests us. 
He, take us, he takes us to breaking points that he might be faithful and show himself faithful that our faith and our trust would grow. And I want you guys to kind of pay attention to what he says here as he speaks about the rejoicing of his enemies. Because we're going to get into kind of a contrast that he begins in verse 5 and 6. In 4 he says, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, in verse 4, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So he's talking about the enemy rejoicing over David's faltering or David's failure or David's capture or David's persecution. But look what it begins in verse 5. But, but, but I have trusted in your mercy. I have trusted in your mercy. Um, I took a look at that, at the Hebrew word trusted that's used in that particular verse to kind of trace it back and see what it says. Kind of an interesting study. That's the exact same Hebrew word that is translated in the Greek in the New Testament of belief or trust, commit to. It's a strong word. It's a lot stronger than, you know, a lot of times as we take a look at this Hebrew word, and I don't know how to pronounce this, you guys, but um, uh, batah, B-A-T-A-H, batah. And, and that same word translated in the Greek is like pisteo. And, and the one thing he's talking about here, as we take a look at it, says where, um, but I have trusted in your mercy. All the chips are on the table, okay? He takes the entirety of the chips that are on his side in a poker game, everything's pushed to the table, and he says, look, I'm all in. It's you I trust in. I have no back door. I have no escape route. All my trust is in you. And that's actually what the word believe in the Greek is in the New Testament. Now, I want you to think about this, about the forcefulness of that word. We take a look at the word believe, and let's just take a look at John 3.16, right? A verse that we all know, that the world knows, whether they believe or not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have life everlasting, right? That word believe is not just a simple mental assent to the fact of Jesus Christ being son of God. It goes much, much deeper and more powerful than that. This word trust is um, an intense all-in, everything I am is rolled on you. And I have no back door. Our English language of the word belief tends to be so weak you know, it's like, okay, I, all I got to do is say this. All I got to do is believe in my mind. And I say this because, you guys, this is where I was growing up in the church 
from six years old till I was 46 years old when I started understanding what Jesus Christ is saying in these words between Genesis and Revelation. It's an all-in factor. Um, As I took a look at this, and maybe I'll read this real quick. In this word dictionary, one of the ones I've got, okay, it speaks of trust and that, and that word of what it is. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just read a couple of chapter, or a couple of uh, paragraphs. It says, the essence of trust is a recognition of who God is and who we are. Those who are wealthy could be tempted to trust in money. Those who are politically powerful could trust in their social networks. Those who are strong could seek stability on the basis of physical or military might. Intelligent people may be tempted to think that they can make sense of life on their own understanding and intellectual prowess. It is only when we recognize that all of these things are insufficient that we must look outside of ourselves. To trust God rather than any of these earthly things is to express confidence in his character and to acknowledge that he is more reliable than anything we possess, um, than anything we possess, might, or attain. Trusting God means that we lean upon him even when it may invite our own destruction. In a story repeated three times in the Old Testament, it talks about 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah 36. It says, The Assyrian king Sennacherib threatens Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem with the challenge to their dependence on the Lord. Sennacherib specifically derides Hezekiah's trust in God for deliverance. It is during these moments when we are surrounded with terrifying circumstances that our trust is tested. To rely on God is to acknowledge our helplessness and to resign ourselves to his care no matter the cost. It is chilling to think of the massacre Sennacherib would have inflicted on Jerusalem if he had the chance. However, when morning came, 185,000 of his men lay dead, and God had proved once again why he is a God who can be trusted. When we trust in him, we will not be disappointed. I thought that was powerful, and that's a, a neat way to put it. And the thing about it is that David is, is at a place of now, at least he realizes in, in his perceived place, um, emotional place, is that he's made the decision to, t- to trust God and to trust his mercy, his love, and his compassion no matter what the harm was going to be to him. No matter if life was going to end at that particular moment. No matter if he was going to be captured, tortured, um, tormented, and killed. He made the decision at this point in time, I will trust the Lord. That's the all-encompassing definition that I've been able to gather out of that word trust or belief. It's powerful. He says in verse, the rest of of verse 5, he says, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. My heart, think about this. 
you guys have been places probably of pure, absolute, unconditional delight. I think the description here is good. My heart will rejoice. My heart will sing. It's a picture of true joy. And there's a lot of other psalms, and I wanted to kind of, uh, I want to start kind of winding down a little bit so we have time to pray and get into Nepal and some things. And um, There's so many psalms of David's that are similar to this to just spout out absolute, unrestrainable joy in the midst of who God is. And, and think about what, has, what, what we just went through that David has traveled through. He's traveled through a place of absolute despair to a place of desires and, and um, what do you call it, petition, right? To a place of unconditional delight. Because why? Because he's reminded as to who God is, reminded of God's faithfulness. You know that saying and I know that Aaron's been one to be kind of a champion of this saying, and I love it too, is that um, um, God's past faithfulness demands our present trust, right? So true. God has not, nor will he ever, let you down. He will test us. He will allow us to enter in through trials and tribulations for our good. So David speaks of rejoicing. He speaks of his heart rejoicing in this. And I wanted you guys to pay attention in that last section at the end of verse 4 where it talks about the rejoicing of his enemies, right? David uses the same verb to deliberately contrast the, the enemy's celebration in victory over David, David he used the same exact um, verb in that word rejoice in the Hebrew here to explain his own confidence in God's divine deliverance. And he purposely makes that, that tie in there. From the enemy's rejoicing to his rejoicing in the confidence of trusting in God's mercy. So he says, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He says, I will sing to the Lord. And you know, the reason why we sing in a gathering of the assembling of saints here is to express our place of joy. Gathered together with others expressing their place of spiritual joy to a God who hears. And it's such a picture as some of the prayer was beginning, you know, as, as we prayed before getting into this teaching. It's such a pretty picture to imagine us being in that place 
of heartfelt, how does David put it? My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. In that place of heartfelt rejoicing before the throne of God, being able to be in his presence with hearts just exploding in the joy and um, exceeding greatness of his presence. You know, Jesus Christ has said, if you look at John chapter 10, verse 10, Remember when the description of the enemy was the enemy um, has not come except to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But Jesus contrasts that by saying, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus Christ is promising exactly the same thing this side of the cross that David felt by God Almighty on that side of the cross. You know, he's he's promised us so much and has done so much as we take a look in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Speaking of God, it says in chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 Peter, it says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And, you know, back to in this section, the last thing that I want us to just meditate on or maybe we'll begin our prayer for the nations. The last verse, where is it? Psalm 13, verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations.